We find ourselves in the year 1813, with the Prince Regent at the helm, and there is plenty to chat about, dear listener. In this episode, your historian hosts find themselves elbow deep in the archives, where they discuss the lasting legacy of Le Bon Ton, being frenemies with another country, and who topped who in society. Without further ado, Talk of the Turn, the Duke and Us, Episode 3, Talk That Turn to Me. How do you do, dear listeners? I'm Elle. I'm Erin. And we're two of the over 82 million households that fell deep into the Bridgerton series. And we can't like things in a chill way. In this episode, we're discussing the Ton and what's so goddang interesting about the Regency era. What was the Regency era? Well, it lasted approximately from 1811 to 1820, which is also when the Prince Regent was around. So um, we had the Mad King George, George III. Elle and I are both Americans. And so uh, when you <laughs> grow up in, in American history, you learn about Mad King George yep. um, being kind of the enemy of the American Revolution. So at this point, he had become so, had lost control, I guess, of his mental faculty so much that they went ahead and made his son Prince Regent George IV. And so he was basically, like, in charge at the time. King George III was still around, but... And they're not quite sure what the medical reason, I guess, behind his his quote-unquote madness was. Some think, think it was blood poisoning. It could have been a lot of things. But... At this time, Prince Regent is large and in charge, emphasis on large, um, (laughs) which we learn about from quite a few satire cartoons of the time. I think the Prince Regent and, you know, eventually, uh, who eventually becomes King George IV, Mm -hmm. he is a good lesson in not giving your children complexes about food when they're young, because... King George III and Queen Charlotte, they lived lives of moderation as far as kings and queens mm-hmm. <laughs> went. They they preferred they preferred moderation and they instilled that in the prince. So much so, you know, I, I have a feeling that he probably struggled with his weight as a young child mm-hmm. because they constantly had him on diets growing up and they constantly were enforcing this idea of living a, in moderation. And there was a story which sounds very first world problems, but that he would maybe get a tart for dessert, like a fruit tart, but he was only ever allowed to eat like the middle of it, just the fruit part. Oh, <laughs> which, you how know, awful. First world problems at the same time, that'll mess you up. <laughs> that Yeah, that will. That'll straight mess you up. The crust is the best part. It is. <laughs> And so he grew up in this very constrained kind of atmosphere from his parents, as one would do as soon as he came into power and he realized like, oh, I can kind of do whatever I want at this point. He just like went buck wild. Mm -hmm. And he lived a life that was very rebellious against his parents and just very gluttonous. (laughs) 
mm-hmm. <laughs> very, very full of lust. And he just, he followed all of his earthly urges. And, and that's kind of what, that's how people saw him as someone yeah. who was just living this, this very lush lifestyle coming out of a very, a very chaste period of time. Well, and I think that like, if you're... If you're the royal, right, in mm-hmm. in this world, and you are always presented with the best cuts of meat, with the best pastries, like the, you know, the bread is amazing, all of the stuff, like, I would see, yeah, there being a problem trying to moderate yourself, especially when you're a kid, and especially when someone's like building in these anxieties and like associations with you that I don't know you shouldn't have this or you can't have this or whatever yes someone's Um, telling you no 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 when it's really yeah 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 but yet there's (laughs) like these plates of food that are nearby near you that like no one else has access to because they're not as royal as you or whatever That would be hard. You know, when we think about what makes this time so interesting, why we keep coming back to this time as far as a setting for these romance stories that we love so much, it's partially that. It's partially the Prince Regent and coming out and saying, you know what? I want everything that brings me pleasure. Forget trying to be pious. Forget trying to to live a life in moderation. Forget all that. Mm -hmm. I'm here to have fun. And, and yeah. that's it. So he brought with him, it's somewhat known as a, being a, a similar time in history as the, the 1960s were in America. Mm, yes. Where it's just this time of great cultural flux because you have this prince who is living this life out loud and that is, is trickling on down to the aristocracy and the aristocracy is saying like, oh, we can actually get away with a whole hell of a lot more (laughs) because our prince, you know, is setting the tone. And so we can go out and have these affairs. We can go out and just kind of do whatever. It's kind of a wild time in that way. So you have that social cultural flux. You have the beginnings of the industrial revolution, which is driving people from the countryside, all the commoners and the working poor from the countryside into the cities. You have peak colonialism like this this is yeah the united kingdom at its its height as far as an empire goes thinking of the the similarities between the 1960s and and this period is the colonialism and like the wars that are being fought are at are directly involved with colonialism yes almost exactly like the Vietnam War. Yes. No, because, yeah. Like, so, oh. like, it's like a war that, like, the men don't want to fight they're, yep. or they're they're not invested in. Yep. It's not, you know, pressing, you know, enemy lines kind of thing. It's like they're fulfilling someone else's destiny that's not necessarily their own. It's their governments or their, you know, monarchies. The Industrial Revolution leads to extra mobility of the lower classes that hadn't mm-hmm. existed before. People were a- now able to, to climb through the ranks and to gain money, gain notoriety that just wasn't possible before. So people were maneuvering across social classes, which is a a completely new dynamic um, and completely upsetting (laughs) to the aristocracy because with the Industrial Revolution comes the dying of the agricultural ways that the aristocracy really made their money and kept their money. So they're they're losing their workers on their lands. Mm -hmm. Those are not the ways that people are making money anymore because people are now making money in coal. They're now making money in industry. Yeah, tradesfolk have gone up. There's a power dynamic that's happening. The aristocracy are kind of at the very their their foot is like half off that cliff's edge and they're not even really realizing it at this point that their way of maintaining power and control and money 
has gone away, is in the process of going away. So there's that shift that's happening as well. And we're also seeing the beginning of the end of the absolute monarchy, the whole idea Mm -hmm. of it, because you have these rapidly changing fortunes. You have people gaining power and wealth that speak more for the people than the monarchs do. And you also have a lot of outside influences because the late... 18th century, mid to late 18th century, was a very tenuous time for monarchies. You Mm -hmm. have America, (laughs) who straight up (laughs) said, you know what? We don't like it. We're just not going to, we're not going to. This is what we think of your tea. Yeah. It's for the fishes. The the, the only good tea party. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, truly. Was like, you know what? Fuck your taxes. Because mm-hmm. what what do you even do for us? You do nothing for us. And you're like a thousand miles away. So who the fuck cares what you think or want? Yeah. This is this is a total tangent. But so we're recording this in 2021. Mm-hmm. And January 6th, there was an insurgence yes. on the Capitol building. And I was watching some like TikTok of, I mean, I watched a billion TikToks, <laughs> but of this, it was a woman reacting to this other man's TikTok. And the, the original TikTok said, this man was like, what do they want us to do? Write a letter and have everyone like sign it of what all the things we disagree with them or whatever. <laughs> she's like, that's not how revolutions are made. And the woman <laughs> responds to him with like, that's yeah. exactly how revolutions are made. That's exactly what you make. You did. make a list and you sign it and you're like, yeah. Yeah. Like, what do you think the Declaration of Independence that you love so much is about? Like, they literally signed a piece of paper and mailed yeah. it to him. Uh, it's just, yeah, it was That's amazing. That's so funny. But, but yeah, so yeah. we have all of that going on, like, at the same time. So one of the other major factors in why society, why English society was the way it was in the early 1800s is because most of them were stuck where they were. This was a time when, even though the sun was not setting on the the British Empire, a lot of other countries were looking at the British Empire and they were like, we're coming for you, girl. We are coming Mm -hmm. for that gig. Because at this time, the British Empire was that girl. They had won, basically, the colonizing game. They played and they they won. And a lot of other countries were mad about it. And... That's partially the reason why the French helped America out in the revolution. And they were an integral part of that. We probably would not have won the revolution without the allyship from the French. So (laughs) you have that. Mm -hmm. That's happening in the the 1770s-ish. And Mm -hmm. at that time, France was still its own monarchy. And after helping out the Americans, they were like, why? I mean, they're right. Like, this monarchy thing is dumb. But but we're still a monarchy. Like, what? what yeah like let's let's figure yeah. some stuff out so that is where the french revolution comes into play and that is you know the birth of napoleon <laughs> and mm-hmm. once you have the french revolution once you have that monarchy toppled you have napoleon in charge of the french and that throws the british straight into the napoleonic wars because Mm-hmm. Napoleon is spreading and the French are spreading very dangerous ideas about uh, a republic and the importance of the voice of the people and the power of the people. Mm-hmm. And those are things that are just huge no-nos <laughs> for for any monarchy. Yeah. Any monarchy does not want their people thinking about these things, <laughs> thinking about how, oh, all of this extravagant wealth that you guys have comes from somewhere 
oh, it comes from us. And just taking as much yeah. from us as you possibly can and squeezing any sort of wealth that could come down to us through our own labor and treating us so poorly and telling us that we just have to take it. Yeah. And then you're going to throw it in our faces by showing us this plump motherfucker yes. who's yes. like going to be, you know, screwing everything in sight and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. So the British no. were like super not down with what Napoleon was about because he was also going around to other countries. He was going around to like the Netherlands. He was going around to his sisters and like he's like hey check it out you can have a government that is not so tied to the church that is not so tied to a monarchy and that actually is more fair to the working class and they were like hey that sounds kind of cool let's try that out and he had that small boy energy napoleon was like yeah 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 let's do this but hey in order for us to do this like we really got to take a stand we're gonna have to put some sanctions on britain we're we're gonna have to like not let them trade with us because you know they're like the worst of the worst when it comes to being monarchs. Mm-hmm. And so what was happening then was the opposite of Brexit, <laughs> where Britain's like, yep. no, we, we want access to the continent. Like, we, we want access to all of it. And you're trying to take it away <laughs> from us, Napoleon. And Napoleon's over yeah. there, like, you know, how do you like them palms? Well, like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's always got, so like he's always famously painted with his hand in his coat, but that's always because he very quickly pulls it out and gives the middle finger, like flips the bird at them. (laughs) He has, he actually pulls out a piece of paper that has um, has Switzerland's number on it and he just like holds it up against the window. He's like, actually, I do have something for you Brits. He's like, yeah, I got her number. (laughs) How do you like that? (laughs) Yeah, how do you like them palms? (laughs) So they had had this boiling thing going on for a while, which was also very odd because at the same time, France, up until and like even after the toppling of their own monarchy, France was like the epitome of fashion. They were the influencers of the time as far as the aristocracy went because they had it all. Like they had the art, they had the craftsmen they had the fashions they had it all everybody wanted their Mm -hmm. shit because it was so good and even george the prince regent was obsessed with france they were like if you've ever been to a party or walked into a room and you you spot a, a couple people standing with each other and you can instantly clock that like oh those two are either fighting or fucking. <laughs> like, there is an energy those two give off, and it's tense. <laughs> that that was Britain and France for a very long time. Yeah. It's like the old moonlighting yeah. sort, of, sort of atmosphere. They were, like, at it, obsessed with each other, but also, like, mm-hmm. they just, they needed to work some shit out. And, yeah. you know, that... That kind of brings us into what society was like in Britain at that time. And we see it in Bridgerton, where Mm -hmm. all of the aristocracy is stuck in Britain because they can't leave because they're in the middle of all these wars. So it's not safe for them to go out, especially the first sons. All the heirs have to stay because they're so important to continue the bloodline. They can't risk leaving. So you have them there and stuck and bored (laughs) so all of that energy has to go somewhere and so it goes into peacocking you get your dandies out of this um Mm -hmm. they get obsessed with their clothing Mm -hmm. they get obsessed with appearances they get obsessed you know with societal functions well there's so much that they can't control that's out of their hands and so i think that where the ton comes in and like the 
all of the trappings and social mores and all that stuff that's contained within that become so almost stringent is that that's what they can control. Yes. They can follow etiquette. They can follow ball procedure <laughs> yeah. or whatever, like all that kind of stuff or like promenading. They can, they can control all of those, you know, that's like a schedule. Yeah, they're on. absolutely. And another thing too, that we see that is so interesting because it, it's in the show Bridgerton and it's also in the series, maybe not the Duke and I, specifically but it is shown in the series that everything french was still very fashionable during this time and that meant Mm -hmm. that there would be people who would fake french accents in order to appear to to be more hip and with it just um, like our modiste in the bridgerton netflix series and in one of the later books one of the main characters offers to put on a a fake french accent so that her mistress can seem more fashionable (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah it, it was a real thing that like it, and it's so funny you can you can be at war with a country and still be like oh but you know I, yeah. we might be at war with them but at the same time we still want all of their culture <laughs> please and yeah. thank you i mean and and not that hasn't really changed i mean we're not at war with france mm-hmm. currently not yet but that really hasn't changed to look at them as you know having their finger on the pulse of like what's fashionable it's like who you know who are the main designers or like if you you know have a friend who travels and they're like oh we went to france or whatever it's like holy crap you went yeah, to france it's still, like what are they it's doing still over one there of those places that is seen as that and also just yeah. the concept of being obsessed with a culture but still fighting it is is also just a it's that's a human thing i think we still do that we see a lot of it of what today appears as cultural appropriation where you you take the things you're obsessed with about the culture and you kind of throw away the rest that is i think a human inclination we're constantly fighting against at least Mm -hmm. in this day and age it's something that people try to be more conscious of which is great but it's it's Mm -hmm. something we've always done even if you look at american history and the way that we've adapted black culture specifically without Mm -hmm. giving the the people who created that culture their due yeah i mean our whole top 40 music industry (laughs) is based around the fact that that white musicians stole from black musicians napoleon was just basically over there on the continent looking over at the prince regent and being like why are you so obsessed with me girl i want to (laughs) know and basically doing the whole mariah carey and just being like yeah i don't know her never yeah i don't know her sorry about it i napoleon is such i mean you know there could be i'm sure there are other whole podcasts dedicated to him but i've read somewhere that he is one of the most biographed Mm -hmm. i guess people there's so many books that have written are written about him yeah he's very interesting and i read the only really thing that i read about him was i read his letters to his wife josephine Mm -hmm. and dude was pretty romantic (laughs) like (laughs) i was blushing by like i mean he was very sweet to her and i'm sure he was not cool in a lot of ways and cool in other ways but he could write a letter that's all i'm saying and i mean he he climbed up (laughs) yeah he became the emperor of france which is wild from his yeah and he wasn't even french upbringings you know (laughs) yeah so we have all of that stuff going on with france and the napoleonic wars which is a huge backdrop set piece to any regency era story Uh, it's always happening in the background it's why military officers are generally a large part of 
Regency stories, if you think about Jane Austen, mm-hmm. if you think about the Bronte sisters, even like the the military was always a presence mm-hmm. because it's even yeah. even in Vanity Fair, the military is always a presence because they they were part of everyday life for people. These military militias that would take over these towns. So you have the background churnings of war. You have the internal churnings of the Industrial Revolution and how that's changing society and the way it functions and the aristocracy losing a little bit of its sheen and power at that time, even though they're not realizing Mm -hmm. it because in the moment, they just have it all, right? And this is one of the most decadent periods of time for this very rich set of people, this like thousand or a couple thousand that were able to live this decadently and like have all of this money. Mm-hmm. that's also one of the reasons why this era is so appealing because the sheer decadence of it all especially mm-hmm. in contrast with the harshness of most people's lives at the time which is why you get yeah. a lot of that upstairs downstairs type Definitely. type interaction and type storylines so another thing that makes this an interesting time period and part of the reason i think that we keep going back to it is travel was so much more accessible at this time so coaches and horse travel had been around for a good long while probably a couple hundred years but there were a lot of improvements that happened around this time that made it so much quicker to travel around England making all of England so much more accessible to so many more people for example it takes today it it takes about an hour and a half to drive from Cambridge to London back in 1750 that was a two-day trip on coach on those nice. roads so, and that was a that, that was quite a trip for anybody to make and to travel at that time was not fun <laughs> to sit for two whole days you know in a in a carriage but by 1820 which is you know the time um, of the regency that journey time had been <laughs> slashed to under seven hours so th- wow. that's quite an improvement from two days to seven hours makes england that much smaller people could go around and go do yeah. things and because of that tourism became a more regular thing people could mm. go to bath they could go to the seaside mm-hmm. and more people were just able to do it be exposed to other people which leads to people sharing ideas yeah dangerous thing for a monarchy well and that again that calls back to the comparison to 1960s yes. america where Eisenhower started the interstate system and all of those roadways were created and or approved upon or not approved upon, improved upon. Yeah, so that's another thing that makes that change like that more sped up. Yeah, like you, when you get people moving around more than they ever were, I think society gets all weird and fun and wild and dumb. It's kind of like mm-hmm. the, the invention of the internet and how, for better or worse, communication just became this instant thing the world became so small because we we have access to so much more so much more easily yeah you can you can find almost anything you want you know in a device that's in your pocket which is amazing and basically yeah. the road systems and the advancements in coach design were what cell phones are for us today they allowed for people to learn so much more about the world around them and experience Mm -hmm. more about the world around them um, and bring that back into their daily lives which is obviously going to change people's worldviews it's just like your one friend that you know went to europe for a semester and they come back and they're like oh my god we're in scarves all the time now you'll never understand what it's like (laughs) to know another culture 
Yeah. They, yeah, every everything is said with a French accent. Yeah. That's like when my dad went to Ireland and he came back and everything was, he said everything was brilliant. Like, he'd be like, oh, like, this bowl of cereal is brilliant. This, and it's just like, you gotta yeah. stop, man. You gotta Listen, stop. You could get away with it there, but... <laughs> I know that we threw out a lot of information there. That's a lot of information. And it, it probably, sure. all of it, it feels like a jumble. But the, the entire time was a jumble. And it's also yeah. impossible for us to go uh, take a deep dive into all of these things. Because we're talking about decades, 100 years of history. And that's a lot. That's a lot of people, mm-hmm. places, and things. And it's all extremely interesting. So what is meant by the ton? Yeah. Because I when I was watching Bridgerton, I was like... This means the town. Yeah, me too. I thought they were saying town, but in a fun way. Yeah. Like how they say, but yeah. how they say Sean. <laughs> yeah, again, it's like, oh, this is how they <laughs> like say, how they say it. Sean. I'm like, okay. oh, Ton, Sean, Bon. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but no, so that actually the Ton is another great example of, about how obsessed with French culture <laughs> England was mm-hmm. because the the ton comes from the French le bon ton, which means, you know, translated is the fashionable manner or style. And sometimes mm. that set of people would also be called the Beaumont, which is the beautiful people. So bon ton is actually also the name of a, I don't even know if it's still around. It is. Depar- it is yep. a department store in like mid-Atlantic area. Yeah, I think East it's Coast. mostly online now. <laughs> Sweet. The lasting cultural footprint of the ton is bontons. So that's something to think yes. about. And just so you know, I'm just putting it out there. I'm validating it for everybody. If you have ever shopped at bontons, if you ever bought a cold shoulder <laughs> some clearance ball- belly flats. Yeah, if you ever bought some calf length <laughs> some, some culottes. Calf length culottes. Mm-hmm. From Bonton, you are part of the ton. Yeah, and that's just a fact. That's a fact. You know what else I was thinking is the lead singer of Duran Duran, mm-hmm. Simon Lebon. <laughs> 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 and I just looked him up because I was like, is that a name that he adapted or like you know it like took on for himself? But no, he was born Simon Lebon. Wow, um, that's a good name. So yeah, good so yeah, it's him. a pretty cool name. So he's he's basically Lebon Ton. <laughs> He is Levanton. That is like the the very kind of like, that's the definition of the ton, right? Sweet. But in fact, the ton is made of people, Mm -hmm. a very specific set of people. And to get into it, we kind of have to understand the aristocracy and the peerage a little bit. Mm -hmm. As far as the peerage goes, it's both simple and complex, but we're going to give you the (laughs) simplified version because we don't have all day. (sighs) But as the great philosophers of our time have asked, what's a goon to a goblin? What's a king to a god? What's a viscount to a duke? We want to know. The people want to know. (laughs) So in the very simplest terms, you have a hierarchy of the Mm -hmm. aristocracy, of the monarchy and then the aristocracy. So you start with the king. Top of the top. Prince. Next in line. Or the brother of the next in line. And then after the monarchy, then begins the aristocracy. And the aristocracy is basically going back to, I think, 14, 1500s, maybe. The king would make these decrees and say, hey, this dude right here, he's a ride or fucking die. 
<laughs> he either won a battle for me, made me a shit ton of money, or I owe him big. Yeah. Because I'm about to declare that they have a title. And so the, the highest of those titles is Duke. And then after that, you have your Marquess, which also a French name. It also mm-hmm. one of the most contested and controversial of the aristocracy titles. Oh, really? Yeah. But you have your mar- you, you have your Marquess. They are generally the people who oversee borderlands, okay. which is why they're they're considered important because they are ensuring that the borders are safe. And then below the Marquess, you have earls. And then below the earls, you have your viscounts. And then below the viscounts, you have your barons and Barons are basically your, like, landlords of the time. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds right. And a lot of these were, like, not hereditary for barons. They they were not necessarily hereditary peerages. They were just given kind of the title during their lifetime. So in terms of thinking of the monarchy and the peerage, with Bridgerton, you have Prince Friedrich, who's going to be your top of the top under the king, even though he's prince of another place. And then you have your Duke of Hastings. And then you have a couple steps down. You have Marquess and Earl, not part of the conversation. A couple steps down, you have the Viscount Bridgerton, Anthony. Mm -hmm. And then below that, you have Baron Burbrook, who's, you know, there. (laughs) Awful. So when you think about it. It makes sense that he's a baron. It does. He he is most appropriately a baron. And so when you think about it, and it's discussed in Bridgerton, Daphne really pole vaulted that entire ladder. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's also pretty fucked up that in the show, Anthony was so willing to immediately marry his sister down to a baron. (laughs) Yeah. So this set of people from the duke down to the baron they make up the aristocracy they are Mm -hmm. the main kind of people and to be in the aristocracy you need a title you need to have one of these titles but the ton wasn't just the aristocracy they were kind of the cream of the crop you have the aristocracy but all of these titled families they're having as many children as they can because they're not trying to lose the title through their bloodline so you have famously an heir and a spare at least (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. You have your first son and then you get another son just in case. Have a lot of daughters because they happen, not because you want them. Right. (laughs) And so all of these people still exist. They're still gently bred, as you would put it, or they would put it. But they don't get titles. They are not part of the aristocracy unless they marry into it somehow. They are considered the gentry. They are gently bred people who know how to act in this world. They have access to money. They probably have just as much, if not more money, than their titled counterparts. And within this, you have families that are trying to bridge connections with other families and shore up their place in society by marrying their daughters as well as they can. I, when you just said that, I just thought of the name Bridgerton Mm -hmm. and how that family bridges the ton together. Oh my god! And that's some like Charles Dickens naming Holy style Holy shit, shit, I think we just cracked the fucking code. Is that it? I think we just Let's write to Julia Quinn We're right gonna now, write to Julia Quinn. I think that might be Actually, it. Actually, you know what we're gonna have to do? We're gonna have to figure out. We we found the keyword and yeah. we're gonna have to do a rereading of all these books. We're gonna have to use that keyword to figure out what the code is and then we're gonna have to reread it with that code and figure out yeah. what's in this book, what this book is really trying to tell us, because... Well, I'm immediately buying a cork board <laughs> and several skeins of, of red wool, red yes. string. 
and putting this all uh, together. We, we're getting somewhere. Yeah. Because they do. And, like, as you read the book, I mean, you can see it kind of in the show in this first season. They just have connections with so many different types of people of the time, mostly. But, like, as you read on throughout the series, there it's even more yeah, they, they span. families that they're connected to. and Holy shit. Bridges. Julia yeah. Quinn. Bridging that yeah. time. I mean. A.K.A. Bridgerton. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is not the Tananon podcast, but <laughs> it could be. It might it, it might turn be. into that. There's no guarantees, folks. <laughs> He'll only hammer to smite. The lean and hungry type, nothing is new, I've been to his store before. Gilding and plating, ooh he's sitting with you, but his eyes are on the ore. A shop of economy, buying from him feels like getting for free. The man is mild, a good chap that tames fine minerals. Gold is the matter, if gold isn't your love. You ain't gotta go, there's silver too. Mm-hmm. Oh, here he comes. Watch out or he'll beat you up. Oh, here he comes. He's a gold beater. Run, don't walk to see Philip Tutton on Great Queen Street near Lincoln's Inn Fields about all of your gold and silver, party gold, Dutch medals, and powdered gold and silver needs. For unlike his gold, his prices can't be beat. Now we have an understanding of, you know, what what the Ton was, who it was comprised of. Mm-hmm. We have the, the wealthiest set of people, Laban Ton. We know that these people are trying to bridge the Ton yeah. <laughs> through marriage. <laughs> and that brings us to the season. So uh, so what's, yeah. what's this season about, Aaron? So the season happens roughly from late January to early July, and it coincides with when Parliament is in session so that the, you know, all of the men who hold titles can take a seat in Parliament, the House of Lords. And so that is when they are all in London and not at their country estate. And so it usually coincides with that. And then there's a big break of it at the end of summer. When the city gets too stinky, they're out of there yeah. because... Which, I mean, cities are stinky now. I cannot imagine with, you 18, know... Or 1800s London in the summer. Yeah. And no, like... No air conditioning. Uh, You know, and yeah, no, like, reliable trash collection. Yeah, no plumbing. Um, <laughs> it had to be the worst place. Yeah. I just I don't I don't blame anybody no. who was rich enough for having a country estate, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I wonder if people were into snuff because it like deadened Probably. the like the scent the you know, scent yeah, receptors. Why would in your you want to be whatever? able to smell? Yeah. I can't imagine it, it being that good even in the winter because this was a time period when men God, when e- even even at Versailles, which is a little bit before this, but like mm-hmm. men of the court would still at this period of time regularly piss wherever the fuck they wanted. <laughs> they, they would find a wall and just say, they're like colonizing. Yeah, they're like, they, they would just find a wall and be like, this is the pissing wall now. 
And they would do that indoors. Like, they, they, they wouldn't even bother pissing into a chamber pot because men are men. And they would just whip their dicks out and pee in a hallway. Yeah. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah, and, and it wasn't much better for the people who were are relieving themselves in the, in the right places because... <laughs> right, it's yeah, still, like, in yeah, a room it, with no ventilation. It would still just be... And no drainage. It would basically just be in a closet, <laughs> in a chamber pot. It's basically like a bunch of cats. Like, yeah, it, it was a... It was a stinky place in the best of times, and... <laughs> visualizing all these like litter boxes that aren't even they don't even have the cover-up you know effect of litter like it's just these like they're essentially shitting in these like porcelain bowls basically i mean right now i'm sorry i'm in i'm in my head right now rewriting a tale of two cities like that opening like like it was the stinkiest of times it was the stankiest of times yeah so true. It, it was bad. And so, yeah, the time, like you said, that everybody was willing to be in the city together and, and deal with the stink was from January yeah. to July, basically. Then they're like, let's look for spouses. Yeah. So that's how the marriage mart is born. And who, I can't remember who, I think you know this, who came up I with think, that term, the marriage mart. I know that one of the people who started referring to the season as the marriage mart was Lord Byron. Because he, oh, he okay. was a scamp, yes, yes, that makes you know? Sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he's like a little yeah. tongue cheek. Yeah, but he's not far off the mark. I mean, they are so they are principally looking for marriage opportunities as for far as transference of title, as far as securing money, as, as far as gaining heirs. And with that goes so many so many of these rules and these like social structures that everyone has to follow. Yeah. Because the season is basically, you know, outside of parliament, outside of like the, the government, the networking opportunity. <laughs> It, yeah. it was this five or six month full on networking yeah. marathon. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine. And we've talked about this a little bit off mic, but the mothers, the mamas in Regency stories are often written in a way to make them seem silly. Like they have all these mm-hmm. nervous conditions. They're always like nearly fainting and like overreacting to the smallest of things which is you know funny to to watch the way they're written but at the same time i get it i can't imagine the levels of anxiety that you would experience living this way when any kind of social misstep could possibly lead to ruin especially as a woman yeah well and especially as i mean thinking of you know back to austin again and pride and prejudice thinking of the mrs bennett She's the one who's, I, I would say, like, very cartoonized as being, like, <laughs> She's the know, ultimate. <laughs> uh, she's very silly. Yeah, very, like, everything affects her nerves, blah, blah, blah. But she's the mother of daughters, of only daughters. And, like, that would be even harder. And they're like, in a precarious position because they're not that, they yes. don't have the money to marry their daughters off very well, necessarily. Right. So I would have a nervous condition. <laughs> like, For sure. I, I would be one of those people who were just so full of anxiety over every little thing because it's basically yeah. we've compared the, this to like living in a small town before but this like being in the town and, and having to deal with the season basically your whole life is essentially right. like you're living in high school forever because it's the yeah. same people and every little thing that your sibling yes. does 
that your asshole sibling does (laughs) or does not do is like attributed to you. Like everything comes back to to look at your family and everything is a reflection on if you yourself are like a, you know, good marrying stock or whatever. Like that would be, I mean, I'd be okay because my siblings all seem like pretty norm, Mm -hmm. whatever. They would have been screwed if like. (laughs) If you came up first. If my reputation. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And we see that. We see that with Daphne that she has to deal with that pressure of ensuring that she makes the best marriage that she can because she's the first of her siblings to marry. The first of the ladies to marry. And she knows, she says it in the show, she is setting the bar for the rest of her sisters. And if she marries very well, that means that the chances that her sisters will will marry very well are that much better. So again, Anthony, why are you trying to sell her off? (laughs) Seriously. Well, and there's such a touching part between Daphne and Eloise when Eloise thanks her for being perfect. And it's like kind of this like shitty sister thing. Like, thanks for being like perfect, whatever. But then she's like, you know, really sincerely, thank you for being perfect so that I don't have to be. Like, she knows that because Daphne has, you know, married so well and, and is deemed the the diamond of the first uh, water, that she does not have, like, anything Eloise does, it, you know, she's, she's going to be fine. Much like transportation workers of the time, Daphne has paved um, a better road for, for right. Eloise, and she knows she's going to have a much easier time traversing that same path because... Very uh, true. Because... Daphne has made decisions and put in the work to make it easier for her. So yeah, yeah I, I can imagine True. the season being one of the most nerve wracking times, especially as a, as a woman who is yeah. debuting. Right. Again, I would not survive. I personally would be like Penelope. <laughs> I have a cold. Sorry. Yeah. You know, um, staying in my room. So there's no set age for, for a woman no. to come out. It's some, I mean, it's understood from, from my readings to be sometime, you know, between like 16 and 18, I think is primo, whatever. And then anything past that is kind of like late to be coming out. As a 16 year old, for me to be like, <laughs> what's up, boys? You want a piece of this? No way. The I, pressure. That's, I, yeah. And like, not to mention just like, the, being an awkward teenager. I I mean, I feel like I had a pretty good sense of myself at 16. Not enough to be like, oh, I'm good dinner conversation. I couldn't even or... handle dances at that age. Yeah. I couldn't even handle the high school dances and the pressure of them. So I just said, nope, not doing it because there's a <laughs> yeah. lot of weird pressure there and I don't like it. Yeah. It's like, I don't know. There's just, there's no way that, uh, and again, it's a different, you know, obviously a different time. Like, you know, the teenager wasn't really a thing. Yeah, back exactly. Then. And they were very much raised for this. Like everything that they did was right. in preparation for this time. So they, they were trained from a very young age to be able to do these things. Right. But even then, my God, I, I don't think yeah. I have the temperament for, no. for any of that. The thing about coming, you know, being like out in society or whatever is, still somewhat going on there's i mean even outside of this kind of structure there's still bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs Mm -hmm. for jewish culture and that's you know that's it's not really like hey we're ready to marry now but it's where it's more of a like a we're a man or like a welcoming to adulthood like you have your quinceañeras for in mexican culture um your 15th birthday you have Mm -hmm. debuts in the philippines where you come out and yeah it like you said it it's still very much a thing. You have your sweet 16 on MTV. <laughs> <laughs> when like everyone turns into Violet Beauregard and's like, "Daddy, I want a car." The the American <laughs> the American coming out is is your super sweet 16. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah. And what hip hop uh, artist you get to perform. Oh, yeah. It's, that's very key. That's very, if you, very If you key. cannot get Ciara to come and sing at your Sweet 16, you are not <laughs> going to make it to adulthood and be cool. I don't know. I wonder who I would get. Like, I know who I would get, like, who I'd want to get, but, or who would I get, like, you know, like, who would my parents be able to get? I know, right? Who, who like, would they think to get? Great. Yeah, imagine, great. imagine being the parents in that situation, too, where, like, <laughs> oh, I know I'm going to have to get her a Range Rover, but I know she's going to be really pissed if I don't get the right color. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the, oh, gosh. I, like, what a strange thing to have witnessed. I think it's that thing, though, like. When you have enough money, though, yeah, you will make up reasons to spend it. You will make that's up true. ways. That's true. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. But the season um, does still exist in like more of this kind of traditional sense. It still goes on in the mostly in the American South, I would say. But there's also international debutantes and balls that that happen. I read a really great book called The Season: A Social History of the Debutante by Kristen Richardson, and she herself was a debutante back in probably the 80s or 90s when when she was of age and she writes about you know sort of this sort of starting in in regency england and and before and and not just being an english thing but then how it got transferred to of course when they colonized in the americas it happened there and then as we've become a more global world even countries like china and korea and and japan have also seen their own debutante sort of things happening and and rising to that and it's now become this kind of international thing so it still happens i think it more happens in less of a hey we're ready to marry now and more of just like a networking for maybe higher education opportunities maybe um scholarship opportunities so it kind of at this point to me anyway as an outsider i see it as a pageant versus debutante sort of thing yeah. it's very very similar to like what a pageant I can see might that. Be. and i definitely see the networking mm-hmm. thing because the parents who are, are affording this kind of thing are, are probably have you know businesses probably have you know money and they have their mm-hmm. own kind of social scene and i'm sure they want everybody within that social scene to know this is my daughter this is my son right so i i can see you know the purpose of having those social events having those debutantes and all that and it's still being relevant in some in some social circles today what i also found really interesting and this uh i think might be a good transition to talking about the racial makeup of society in the regency and in bridgerton is that in this book the season they talk about there being a a white contingent of debutantes and then a black contingent of debutantes and of course since this is all happening in or most of it's happening in the american south they're living like next to each other and then and then there are discussions of integrating those two type of debutante systems and i'm i'm not quite sure where it's landed as of now as of 2021 when i'm recording this but i do know that both still exist down in the in the american south and so that's an interesting thing too that there's this even within communities of of color or geographically that the debutante sort of system still Mm -hmm. still happens but speaking of that, so one of the things that has made Bridgerton so popular is that we get to see people of color holding titles and moving in these circles that we have understood historically to be more of just an only whites. However, doing some reading, and it has been estimated that during Regency England, there has been as many as 30,000 people of color living in that 
country, which was a pretty small population in and of itself at the time, but nothing to sneeze at. Now, they held different statuses. There were folks who were still enslaved. That did not go away until I think the 1820s or maybe 1830s in England. Of course, it didn't go away in America for quite some time after that. And um, as we know, the end of enslavement does not mean instant freedom. So there's a lot to deal with after that. But I did find some really interesting people of note who were people of color in and around the time of Regency England, with a few exceptions. So the first one that I found, and I only learned this like maybe a year ago, that this very famous author who wrote Count of Monte Cristo, among other things, Alexander Dumas. So he's a French guy, not English. And he, he was born in 1802. So he's... He, you know, overlaps Regency England era just a little bit, but he was of mixed race. So his father, who was some kind of army or military guy in Haiti, was white. And then his mother was Afro-Caribbean. So he is of mixed race. And yeah, when you look up photos of Alexander Dumas, he looks like a man of mixed race. Another person I found who was pretty famous and of color was John Edmonston. And John Edmonston was Charles Darwin's taxidermy teacher, which I thought was pretty interesting. (laughs) Yeah. And he was, he had been enslaved. I'm not sure what the story is behind his, his freedom, but he became educated and was able to then teach one of the most famous scientists of any period. A few more, I've got Dido Elizabeth Bell. So she was um, really around this time. And her father was Sir John Lindsay, who was a famous military officer. She was actually raised by Lord Mansfield. And so that was her uncle. And so she was his ward. And so he introduced her into quote unquote polite society. And I I felt like this was very similar to Marina when we're reading about the Featheringtons taking in this cousin's daughter. It felt very similar to that sort of wardship stuff that we read about in quite a few of these Regency era novels. It's a, a little different context because she's the cousin, a distant cousin or something. But there are later Bridgerton books where being someone's ward really yeah. does come in more into play. For anybody interested, there is a movie about Belle. It's a 2013 film and the title is Belle. And it stars Gugu Mbatha Ra, who's amazing. Nice. Yeah, I haven't watched it yet. I'll have to watch it. Thinking of other characters in Bridgerton, we've got Will Mondrich, who is... The Duke's friend, who was a boxer slash fighter, and I was reading about another pretty famous boxer fighter of the time, who was a black man, and his name was Bill mm. Richmond. I can't say for sure if this was a one-to-one sort of representation of, of that actual historical figure, but there are a lot of similarities there. And then I also read, and of course this is not at all the same time period, but I thought it'd be interesting to mention that there was a black Duke in the 1500s. Oh. He was Italian and name was Alessandro de' Medici. He was the Duke of Parma and he was the first Duke of Florence. So they named him the Moor or Il Moro because of his heritage. But yeah, he was a pretty short-lived Duke. He was, he was pretty young when he died. I think he was in his 30s, I guess. But yeah, there's some precedent there for a black Duke. So you go you and do you, Simon Bassett, Duke of Hastings. For 
anybody that criticizes people of color being in these stories, either on screen or in books, or anybody who defends the whitewashing yeah. of their own writing when it comes to stories of this time period, like it, yeah. it doesn't hold water. Like stop, stop saying that no, shit because it doesn't hold water. You don't get to go around, sail around this entire earth and take over without bringing bringing some of those people and cultures yeah. back and them existing in this world. Yeah. They existed in this world. Well, and this very, very tiny list that I just read off is just the ones that I picked out from, trust me, minimal research. Yeah. <laughs> Absolute minimal research. It doesn't research. take a lot. And this is of, you know, a larger, huge list of people that made their way into historical papers. So think of you and Joe Schmo, and I'm not going to, I know two centuries from now when, when I'm dead and gone, that no one's going to pick up a paper and talk about the librarian who lived, you know, whatever. <laughs> like, think about all of the people who are present in the day, your day-to-day life that are of varying colors and heritage and, and whatever. So they just weren't included in these stories, but they were there. <laughs> And now a public notice from one of our finest patronesses, Mrs. Reina. Finding it has been widely reported I was dead, I beg to inform my friends and the public that I continue my well-known regular mode of business in millinery, dress, stay, and habit making, etc. I will happily make dresses of ladies' own materials in the newest cut and fashion, although I keep a very large stock of the most elegant articles. Ugh the nerve of some people, dear listeners. Let's support our very alive Mrs. Reyna at 6 Great Newport Street in Soho. And to those who reported her dead, jealousy is a disease. Get well soon or die mad. Best of luck to you, Mrs. Reyna. One of the things about this time period that is uh, compelling for us as, you know, modern readers, watchers of these stories that have to do with the, the Regency era is the idea of duels. And oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Duels usually being a matter of honor among men and duels being stupid. They have always been stupid from the beginning of time. The whole idea of dueling, very dumb. Yep. But compelling as far as the story goes because we, we have a very <laughs> compelling duel that goes on in Bridgerton, even though the entire time everybody's like, this is a very stupid idea. Anthony, mm-hmm. are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> My man Mondridge is like, yep, I'm, I'm coming yeah. with you, but this is very stupid. So the whole idea of dueling, it, it's not unique to the Regency era, but as they state in Bridgerton, dueling was illegal. It was not something that was okay by the state, but it was kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge thing. It wasn't something that was enforced. It wasn't a law that was necessarily enforced. And it, it was... It was dumb. I did some research on it just because I think the whole Mm -hmm. idea is interesting. And, you know, dueling exists in a time before there was really a criminal justice system like we know it today. There, There was court. Obviously, you would bring matters to court or you would bring matters to a local magistrate who would sort out, you know, whatever issue you had with somebody. But that was a a slow process. That was a process of if you had enough wealth, (laughs) almost almost like the current criminal justice system. It was not something that could give you immediate satisfaction. And uh, and these were times when people demanded immediate satisfaction. So there was no judge. There was no judge. No judge. 
no judge nope. brown um there was no people's court it was right <laughs> if you had a problem with another dude you could demand satisfaction from them directly and mm-hmm. say let's shoot at each other about it because there was no just uh, there was no equivalent for women right no i mean no not really you just had a grin and yeah i mean it, it See, <laughs> for women, it, it was more how socially cunning can you be to, to outwit the yeah. other. Women played the long game. Men were of yeah. passion, even though if they were to talk about it, it was the opposite. <laughs> women had right. to be smart right. and cunning. Men just got to shoot at each other if they wanted. So dumb. Yeah, but obviously they're the ones who should control governments. But I... Yeah. <laughs> Again, this is not the Chapo Townhouse podcast. We're we're not gonna get into the politics of it. But right. but I I did look into um, a read up on dueling a little bit, and I, I found a man after my own heart, a man who just wanted to put a data set together and explore it. James Gilchrist, who was asked by King George the Third to put together a, a study of duels. So he published this report called A Brief Display of the Origin and History of Ordeals, God, which uh, also is, is going to be the title of my memoir. <laughs> it's beautiful. I love it. It's, it's a beautiful. beautiful title. And he put together this report, which details all of the known duels in England that span King George III's reign. So from about 1760 to about 1820. It's an amazing report. I say that as someone who loves reading reports and data sets. (laughs) And he could find 172 known combats, known duels. Of those, 69 people were killed, which is both nice and also not nice (laughs) because it's not cool to kill people over dumb shit which most of these most of these things were real dumb shit in actually three of those duels neither combatant survived (laughs) so in three of those duels they just killed each other oh shit which is wild 96 were 48 of them were desperately wounded and around 188 escaped unhurt from those duels so uh, an interesting data set and with that information we know that one-fifth of the combatants of, of these known duels lost their lives and nearly a, one half of them received a bullet <laughs> in their body so from this duel. Yeah, and who's to say that, like, in a couple of years' time that got infected? And Yeah, like, like who know? knows what like, kind of, like, health idiots. effects people endured after yeah. this. Of these duels, which were illegal at the time that they took place, we also know that only 18 trials took place because of these duels. And that of these, only two of the people who committed the crime of dueling were executed for it. <laughs> and only eight were imprisoned for it. So it wow. really was not a crime that the crown spent that much time worried over. People. Right. Yeah. Not And it's because the people who were dueling were generally people of wealth. <laughs> they were people who yeah. could afford to get away with breaking this law. And yeah. actually in this book or in this report that James Gilchrist published, it's kind of fascinating because there's a chapter on each duel. Like it details what each duel was about, who fought it. And so one of the people that's in this book is Lord Byron, not the poet Lord Mm -hmm. Byron, but his uncle who held the title before him, actually his great uncle. So Lord Byron dueled his cousin and neighbor, William Chatsworth. And this is indicative. I'm just going to get into the story a little bit, but just so you know, this is indicative of like all the duels. This is basically what all the duels are like and what they're over. So Lord Byron was in a tavern drinking with his cousin, William Chatsworth. And... They got wine drunk. They got wine wine drunk off that Rossi. And they started to argue over whose land had more game on it. I can tell you has zero game. Any of these boys. Either of these boys. (laughs) 
And so yeah. they get in this fight. They can't let it go that both of them think that their land has the most game on it. <laughs> and so they were like, you know what? Let's let's go into one of these side rooms and let's have a sword duel about it. Freaking dinguses. So just stupid. And they have this duel and it's like, you know, in a tavern, the lighting is probably not great. They're wine drunk. And so Lord Byron sticks his cousin and it's not an immediately fatal wound. William Chatsworth does not die until the next day. And so there's just a lot of like hanging around seeing if he's going to die or not. And it's noted that William Chatsworth on his deathbed is like, man, my only real regret is that I should have demanded that we do this in better lighting. <laughs> like, oh, I would have won that. I would have won that. Yeah. If we had better lighting. If I if I would have just said we, sh- we should do this out. Oh, yeah. That's I mean, that's such a man <laughs> really move, too. Is. And then he went and croaked. And then yeah. Lord Byron. <laughs> Lord Byron. Please took that sword that he killed his cousin with over a shitty, stupid argument while they were wine drunk and hung it in his bedroom. <laughs> and he's like, I, I'm going to look at this sword every fucking day. And I don't know if he did that as penance or he did that as a reminder right. of he is, he is that bitch. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, and and the bedroom's a weird choice too. Very weird choice to hang that. Because there yeah. are other rooms that are not the place where you sleep and fuck. Yeah. <laughs> and he was actually, I have a feeling that he he did that because he was proud of it. Because he was, after this, nicknamed the Wicked Lord. And he oh, damn. loved that nickname. He lived for it. So I think he was probably just a giant piece of shit. Yeah. And probably didn't feel that bad about killing his cousin. But also, another reason why I bet dueling was only of like the higher classes is because the lower classes had real shit to worry about you know what i mean they're not like they're gonna be like if someone's like hey man you did you said this to my wife and be like all right well i have a really hard time feeding my family right (laughs) now like i'm I'm just trying to get bread on the table like hey listen (laughs) having some hard times right now so like like can I just say I'm sorry and let's be done with that? And they'd be like, no problem. Yeah, they were just so tired from working an 18-hour day. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, the luxury of being you would mad have to be so about someone... You'd have to be so bored. Yeah, assuming you had more whatever. What are the rules? Like, after you duel something out, are you just not allowed to bring it up anymore? Are you not allowed to be mad about it anymore? Yeah, The things still happen that you were mad about, and that hasn't really yeah. been resolved. <laughs> <laughs> because most True. most of these duels were fought over like property issues, right? But Ugh. at the same time, keep in mind that during this period, women were considered property. <laughs> so yeah. unfortunately, that it, it it was either women or property, or in their mindset, yeah. property. I would be like, okay, husband, you want to duel because this man said this thing to me, whatever. But guess what? If you do this, you're never getting laid yeah. again. I'm never gonna do that for you. <laughs> like. I don't know what you want. I don't know. I just, and obviously, yeah, I'm saying this from a 21st woman perspective, but holy crap. It's just so dumb. It seems so stupid to risk your life over something generally petty. Very petty. Yeah. But you know what? They lived for it. They died for it. They loved it. They they loved a good duel. It's (laughs) a romantic thing. Maybe. I don't know. Like, it's dumb. Yeah. So you have dueling, which is another aspect of, you know, something that really it doesn't really happen, happen so much in, in today's age where 
No. I mean, there's definitely fighting. Yeah. I definitely think you're right. Where, like, there, and it's, oh, it's a man thing that, like, you know, they just, like, duke it out. <laughs> pun intended. <laughs> but, like, yeah. And then they're just like, well, we don't talk about it again. Because uh, men are so weird about their emotions. And, yes, I am coating a, a blanket over whatever. Men are not a monolith. Blah, blah, blah. But it, how masculinity has been socialized in men, yes, they have a hard time dealing with their emotions. That even, like, when you see a man, even today, go and hug another man, they have to literally, like, beat the back of their back. Yeah, they have to be real <laughs> weird about it, right? To be like, yeah, I'm not really yeah. hugging you, man. I'm, like, just, like, punching you, be- like, I don't know, backwards punching you or something. It's ridiculous. What I'm saying is <laughs> feminism helps yeah, everyone. Fe- feminism okay? is for everybody. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to episode one of the Chapo Ton House. Yeah. In this episode, we're discussing how the idea of manliness is a social construct that's harmful to everybody. It absolutely is. Yes. Dueling, the whole idea is very ultimate toxic masculinity. It it is, it helps nobody. It has the potential to hurt a lot of people. And why? Just why? The why of it all. Yeah. But- uh, again, it it's compelling. We did enjoy watching all of that go down in Bridgerton. I know I did. Yeah. <laughs> I know I enjoyed Anthony's crazed look of like, I've got to shoot this guy because I saw him fondling my and, sister. And poor Benedict being like, I don't want to be the first heir. I yeah. Benedict be like, like, like seeing in his eyes just kind of go back and forth thinking like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Just want to go to yeah, paint I night. Yeah, I just, I just. <laughs> That's all I want to do. I just want to drink wine and go to paint night with the girls. Just my paint friends. What am I going to do? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, that, all, all of that. I mean, I, I do think that is something that's interesting, I guess, about the Regency to bring it back to, like, why is that so, why does that hold such storytelling power and stuff is because of that juxtaposition between seeing these beautiful men wearing these beautiful mm-hmm. clothes that are so tailored for them, but there's still this like masculinity that they have to struggle with. That's that part's very interesting. It's not the only thing that's interesting, but like when you're talking about that, you know, masculinity versus femininity, whatever, there is like a very interesting cross section, I think, to see in that kind of. Well, behavior. yeah. And how it's, and just, just how it's a social construct, right? Like, cause these yeah. men yeah. would spend hours getting ready <laughs> like they would spend yeah. hours on their clothes they would spend so much money on their clothes and that was extremely masculine people would dress them they would have yes. a man who would and that, dress that them. is not a common thing across generations and across cultures a lot of times uh, unfortunately we grew up in a, a time and a culture where men paying that much attention to how they dress how they look to clothes that was seen as too feminine and not manly at mm-hmm. all and so we've addressed it before we grew up in a time period where men they needed a, a whole fab five to tell them hey you can yeah. care about how you look <laughs> yeah it's so it's okay and then we needed a second series yeah, we, of we that. needed a whole we needed one fab five to like just bring the concept in that you, you don't need to be weird about having a, a skin routine you know you don't have to and then you needed a whole new generation of fab fives to really break into Mm -hmm. the emotional aspects of hey you know taking care of yourself is just a good thing to do (laughs) in general yeah and it doesn't have to mean anything outside of just taking care of yourself as a human 
so that is that uh, again is one of the reasons why it's compelling to watch these part of the reason why it's compelling to watch Mm -hmm. shows and and read stories that are based in this time period yeah definitely so i think we are at that stage of this podcast where i invite you aaron to play a game (laughs) would you like to play a game okay Ugh, I guess. <laughs> so this is, if you've listened to the other episodes, at, at the end of the episode, uh, I like to pose a question, a would you rather scenario to Erin mm-hmm. to see well, what she would choose given two scenarios. Okay. So this one is fairly PG. Okay. It's not that bad. Depending. But... <laughs> Aaron, yes. would you rather live your life as a scullery maid for the Featheringtons or marry mm-hmm. and bear the children of Nigel Burbrook? Wow. Wow. The Featheringtons. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Spe- specifically um, this lady Featherington. Yeah. As depicted in yes. Bridgerton. Um, yeah. Oof. Oh. Okay. So, so I just, just a reminder, a scullery maid is the lowest of the low. Mm-hmm. Like, Lady Featherington doesn't even deign to acknowledge you. She doesn't know your name. Well, see, I think I might be okay with that. Well, (laughs) like, so so here's the thing. You know, you got to keep your head down. But no one knows your name. You don't really, you know, you're not really on their radar. You're working, like, 16-hour days on the reg. You, um, there's no vacation time for you. There's no sick days for you. And, you know, at, at the end of the season, Lord Featherington dies. The title that Lord Featherington has goes to a distant cousin so lady featherington and, and her daughters are oh that's true that's something yep. else that we're we have to look forward yeah, to in so season two I, I am assuming from that that the featheringtons are going to be forced to economize so th- given that they're going to keep you on as the scullery maid but that's only because right. they can continue paying you next to nothing while making you do the work of like Ugh. two or three staff. Yeah, and I got an empty chamber pot. Yeah, pots you are on chamber pot duty. That is like your job specifically. Okay. Okay, okay so there's mm-hmm. that compared with marrying Nigel Burbrook. Burbrook. Yep. Yeah. Is his mom living with us though? Yes. He's, God, come on, his see, mom is that's... living with you you know this he's a mama's boy and also yeah she's gonna live a very long and healthy life so it's not oh, even like she's no. just gonna be there for ever and and i gotta bear his kids yeah yeah and you're gonna have 15 of them get yeah. out get you're, out you're gonna have a queen charlotte's amount of children no. 15 whole children with nigel burbrook but okay so here's the thing i'll give you this Okay. Nigel Burbrook, he's still the same in every single way. He looks the same. He acts the same. He's weird. Um, he doesn't know how to talk yeah. to you. He doesn't know how to talk to, you know, anybody yeah. who's not his mother. Mm-hmm. But he can and will dick you down. He <laughs> he knows what that dick do. Somehow, some way. He found out. <laughs> and he's I... like, he's just a, he is just very good and like knows knows how the woman's body works as well so okay. you know i i don't know you snuff those candles out you don't have to look at them. <laughs> but he can put so it down he can, can i down. let me ask you this have you ever dated <laughs> someone who could dick you down but you just genuinely did not enjoy the company of um 
Because I, I was going to say, it, de- it depends on when in the relationship <laughs> we are talking about. I have. It wasn't very long, but I definitely was like, ah, oh, damn it. Like, oh, I have, it's, that's I have, a thing. I have that stayed can in a relationship with a dick. I've done it. Sure. Sure. And, like, that ultimately, that feeling of, gosh, I just really got to get out of this. Yeah. I really got to yeah. get out but, of this. But, okay. Can just really consume But at the same you. time, okay, here's the thing. You have 15 children. So, yeah, that's a lot. You you've got a lot to focus on. You don't you don't actually spend that much time with Nigel. Well, and that's true. at the same time, you're a baroness. You you have a life of luxury. Um, you're taking mm-hmm. care of. You have your own servants. But mm-hmm. I will say, okay, you will take you down. You are a baroness. You do have to give birth to 15 whole children. Ugh. And uh, the thing is, because Nigel is a fucking weirdo, right? So. He yeah. does kind of do a bit of a George Foreman, and he oh, no. he wants consistency across his children's names because he's very like these are my children because he he really wasn't expecting to have children really or even like that many he's he's still surprised that someone married him, so he sure. insists you have no choice he insists that all of his children's names include Igel in it, mm-hmm. so I'll give you what your children's names will be so oh you have uh, Nigel the second of course you have your heir. And then you have mm-hmm. Nigella, you have Migel, you have Marigel, <laughs> you have Rigel, you have Viral Jellica, you have Sophigel, wow. you have Igelcum, <laughs> um, you have um, Henry Igeletta, you have Igelric, you have uh, Igelgale, Montigel, <laughs> Nigelis, Igelrince, and Ellen Igel. Wow! 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 So wow! 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 You, wow! So you have to deal with, you know, presenting those kids to society. That's uh-huh. hard. That's but hard. You um, also, still have good money. He's not mean to yeah. you. He's just weird. He's mm-hmm. not mean. He's not. He's. He doesn't raise a hand to you. He doesn't. He can be a bit rude sometimes. But the thing I'm thinking of, though, is that like, I like to work <laughs> and i like you know i don't know that i like backbreaking scullery made work i'm you know that would be hard for me but i am single <laughs> currently like i've you yeah. know what i mean like i just i think i know what i value and it's not it happens to not be anything to do with that <laughs> <laughs> are you saying you you would rather be the working uh, poor toiling away 16 hours a day with no breaks no vacations no yeah. sick days no mental health days sure yeah uh, rather than be the be baroness burbrook yeah i think that's what i'm saying wow wow <laughs> because the other thing is so look at it from the, okay so scullery made pros <laughs> is that yeah i've got like a job i you know i've got that marxist feeling of a job well done at the mm-hmm. end of the day i can like sleep the sleep of a just i can be friends maybe with penelope because mm-hmm. she's like my favorite person on on the show bridgerton and in the books mm-hmm. the bridgerton series and i could if she you know gets married and has a family of her own i could feasibly maybe move along with her and be part of her house mm-hmm. staff i mean I, there's a lot of ifs there oh, you're just but... trying to get closer to colin um yeah well maybe i could be here's the thing maybe i could be a scholar you made for the bridgertons mm-hmm. and that would be not so bad 
I don't know. I just like the idea of having to look at his dumb face <laughs> of being like tied to him and his mother in, in that. Oh, and to have to raise his children. Oh, I'm just like, they also not, all bear rather... a very strong resemblance to him. Yeah. I bet they would. <laughs> Those are strong Those jeans. jeans. Look like they run strong pretty deep. Yeah. So yeah, I'm going to pick Skyler wow. made. Can't get me this time. I I won't. Not this time anyway. He is like I really thought. Like I, I mean, I I I wouldn't look forward to having to you know birth and raise fifteen children. That sucks, right? Right. And you know, Nigel's no help with that. Like he barely pays attention to his firstborn son, (laughs) and that's really it. Yeah. But honestly, I would marry Nigel Burbrook. I would. You think in so? This, in this situation? Yeah. I could do a lot. I could, you know, yeah. I, I could have my own, my whole own life, you know, out, outside of him. You know, I'd just be one of those. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's true, but. um. And the sex is good. I don't know. It's good. Ooh. You don't want to admit it to anybody. That like, you don't want to tell. I know. I just, it would bring up so much inner turmoil in me. <laughs> like, I know what it's like to have dated someone that the sex is good but that's it <laughs> and like i know how like bleh, no, it, that it, makes can, me feel. it can't eat you up inside yeah so, but yeah, i'm gonna go with okay i'll made. have 15 children to keep my mind preoccupied from my that's own great. internal void <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess we're just gonna have two very different lives that's a good one though so it's a real true. upstairs downstairs with us <laughs> yeah that's a good one though you almost I, got me. i tried i was like <laughs> I knew I couldn't make it all good things. I don't, I don't, I feel like you're just never going to choose Burbrook if he's an option. Well, I mean, I can't think, I can't think of a way that I would, but yeah. uh, I don't know. All right. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe one of these days, I don't awful. know. Uh, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll find a way to sneak it. Maybe you'll get me. <laughs> all right. Well, a thousand expressions of gratitude for joining us on this episode, dear listeners. And thank you next to filmmaker, activist, and friend of the show, Kwame Phillips, for gracing us each episode with his ducal vocalism. You can check out more of his work at kwamephillips.com. That's K-W-A-M-E-P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S dot com. And you can reach out to us via Twitter, Instagram, and email at tontalkpod. That's T-O-N-T-A-L-K pod at gmail.com and social media until next time xoxo aaron and l